Article 21 of the Worship of Saints. Of the worship of saints, they teach that the memory of saints may be set before us, that we may follow their faith and good works according to our calling, as the emperor may follow the example of David in making war to drive away the Turk from his country. For both are kings. But the scripture teaches not the invocation of saints, or to ask help of saints, since it sets before us the one Christ as the mediator, propitiation, high priest, and intercessor. He is to be prayed to, and has promised that he will hear our prayer. And this worship he approves of above all, to wit, that in all afflictions he be called upon, 1 John 2, 1. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, etc. This is about the sum of our doctrine, in which, as can be seen, there is nothing that varies from the Scriptures, or from the Church Catholic, or from the Church of Rome as known from its writers. This being the case, they judge harshly those who insist that our teachers be regarded as heretics. There is, however, disagreement on certain abuses which have crept into the Church without rightful authority. And even in these, if there were some difference, there should be proper lenity on the part of bishops to bear with us by reason of the confession which we have now reviewed, because even the canons are not so severe as to demand the same rights everywhere. Neither at any time have the rights of the churches have all churches been the same, although among us, in large parts, the ancient rites are diligently observed. For it is a false and malicious charge that all the ceremonies, all the things instituted of old, are abolished in our churches. But it has been a common complaint that some abuses were connected with the ordinary rites. These, inasmuch as they could not be approved with a good conscience, have been to some extent corrected. Articles in which are reviewed the abuses which have been corrected. Inasmuch, then, as our churches dissent in no article of the faith from the Church Catholic, but only omit some abuses which are new and which have been erroneously accepted by the corruption of the times, contrary to the intent of the canons, we pray that your imperial majesty would graciously hear both what has been changed and what were the reasons why the people were not compelled to observe those abuses against their conscience. Nor should your imperial majesty believe those who, in order to excite the hatred of men against our part, disseminate strange slanders among the people. Having thus excited the minds of good men, they have first given occasion to this controversy, and now endeavor by the same arts to increase the discord. For, for your imperial majesty will undoubtedly find that the form of doctrine and of ceremonies with us is not so intolerable as these ungodly and malicious men represent. Besides, the truth cannot be gathered from common rumors or the revilings of enemies, but it can be readily but it can readily be judged that nothing would serve better to maintain the dignity of ceremonies and to nourish reverence and pious devotion among the people than if the ceremonies were observed rightly in the churches. Article 22. Of both kinds in the sacrament. To the laity are given both kinds in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper because this usage has the commandment of the Lord in Matthew 26, 27, Drink ye all of it. 
where Christ has manifestly commanded concerning the cup that all should drink. And lest any man should craftily say that this refers only to priests, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11.27, recites an example from which it appears that the whole congregation did use both kinds. And this usage has long remained in the church. Nor is it known when or by whose authority it was changed, although Cardinal Cusanus mentions the time when it was approved. Cyprian, in some places, testifies that the blood was given to the people. The same is testified by Jerome, who says, The priests administer the Eucharist and distribute the blood of Christ to the people. Indeed, Pope Gelasius commands that the sacrament not be divided. Only custom, not so ancient, has it otherwise. But it is evident that any custom introduced against the commandments of God is not to be allowed, as the canons witness. But this custom has been received not only against the Scripture, but also against the old canons and the example of the Church. Therefore, if any preferred to use both kinds of the sacrament, they ought not to have been compelled with offense to their consciences to do otherwise. And because the division of the sacrament does not agree with the ordinance of Christ, we are accustomed to omit the procession, which hitherto has been in use. Article 23 of the marriage of priests. There has been common complaint concerning the examples of priests who were not chaste. For that reason also, Pope Pius is reported to have said that there were certain causes why marriage was taken away from priests, but that there were far weightier ones why it ought to have been given back. For so Platina writes, since, therefore, our priests were desirous to avoid these open scandals, they married wives and taught that it was lawful for them to contract matrimony. First, because Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7-9, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. Also, it is better to marry than to burn. Secondly, Christ says, Matthew 19-11, All men cannot receive this saying, where he teaches that not all men are fit to lead a single life, for God created man for procreation, Genesis 1.28. Nor is it in man's power, without a singular gift and work of God, to alter this creation. Therefore, those who are not fit to lead a single life ought to contract matrimony. For no man's law, no vow, can annul the commandment and ordinance of God. For these reasons, the priests teach that it is lawful for them to marry wives. It is also evident that in the ancient church, priests were married men. For Paul says, 1 Timothy 3.2, that a bishop should be chosen who is the husband of one wife. And in Germany, 400 years ago, for the first time, the priests were violently compelled to lead a single life, who indeed offered such resistance that the Archbishop of Mayence, when about to publish the Pope's decree concerning this matter, was almost killed in the tumult by the enraged priests. And so harsh was the dealing in the matter, that not only were marriages forbidden for the future, but also existing marriages were torn asunder, contrary to all laws, divine and human, contrary even to the canons themselves, made not only by the Popes, but by most celebrated synods. Seeing also that as the world is aging, man's nature is gradually growing weaker, 
it is well to guard that no more vices steal into Germany. Furthermore, God ordained marriage to be a help against human infirmity. The canons themselves say that the old rigor ought now and then in the latter times to be relaxed because of the weakness of men, which it is to be wished were done also in this matter. And it is to be expected that the churches shall at some time lack pastors if marriage is any longer forbidden. But while the commandment of God is in force, while the custom of the church is well known, while impure celibacy causes many scandals, adulteries, and other crimes deserving the punishments of just magistrates, yet it is a marvelous thing that in nothing is more cruelty exercised than against the marriage of priests. God has given commandment to honor marriage. By the laws of all well-ordered commonwealths, even among the heathen, marriage is most highly honored. But now men, and that priests, are cruelly put to death contrary to the intent of the canons, for no other cause than marriage. Paul, in 1 Timothy 4.3, calls that a doctrine of devils which forbids marriage. This may now be readily understood when the law against marriage is maintained by such penalties. But as no law of man can annul the commandment of God, so neither can it be done by any vow. Accordingly, Cyprian also advises that women who do not keep the chastity they have promised should marry. His words are these, Book 1, Epistle 11. But if they be willing or unable to persevere, it is better for them to marry than to fall into the fire by their lusts. They should certainly give no offense to their brethren and sisters. And even the canons show some leniency toward those who have taken vows before the proper age as heretofore has generally been the case. Article 24 of the Mass Falsely are our churches accused of abolishing the Mass. For the Mass is retained among us and celebrated with the highest reverence. Nearly all the usual ceremonies are also preserved, save that the parts sung in Latin are interspersed here and there with German hymns, which have been added to teach the people. For ceremonies are needed to this end alone, that the unlearned be taught what they need to know of Christ. And not only has Paul commanded to use in the church a language understood by the people, 1 Corinthians 14, 2-9, but it has also been so ordained by man's law. The people are accustomed to partake of the sacrament together, if any be fit for it, and this also increases the reverence and devotion of public worship for none are admitted except they be first examined. The people are also advised concerning the dignity and use of the sacrament, how great consolation it brings anxious consciences, that they may learn to believe God and to expect and ask of Him all that is good. This worship pleases God. Such use of the sacrament nourishes true devotion toward God. It does not, therefore, appear that the Mass is more devoutly celebrated among our adversaries than among us. But it is evident that for a long time this, has, this also has been the public and most grievous complaint of all good men, that Masses have been basely profaned and applied to purposes of lucre. For it is not unknown how far this abuse obtains in all the churches by what man matter, manner of men masses are said only for fees or stipends, and how many celebrate them contrary to the canons.
But Paul severely threatens those who deal unworthily with the Eucharist when he says, 1 Corinthians 11.27, Whoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. When, therefore, our priests were admonished concerning this sin, private masses were discontinued among us, as scarcely any private masses were celebrated except for lucre's sake. Neither were the bishops ignorant of these abuses, and if they had corrected them in time, there would now be less dissension. Heretofore, by their own connivance, they suffered many corruptions to creep into the church. Now, when it is too late, they begin to complain of the troubles of the church, while this disturbance has been occasioned simply by those abuses which were so manifest that they could be borne no longer. There have been great dissensions concerning the Mass, concerning the sacrament. Perhaps the world is being punished for long-continued profanations of the Mass, as have been tolerated in the churches for so many centuries by the very men who were both able and in duty bound to correct them. For in the Ten Commandments it is written, Exodus 27, The Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. But since the world began, nothing that God ever ordained seems to have been so abused for filthy lucre as the Mass. There was also added the opinion which infinitely increased private Masses, namely, that Christ by his passion had made satisfaction for original sin, and instituted the Mass wherein an offering should be made for daily sins, venial and mortal. From this has arisen the common opinion that the Mass takes away the sins of the living and the dead by the outward act. Then they began to dispute whether one Mass said for many were worth as many as special Masses for individuals. And this brought forth that infinite multitude of Masses. Concerning these opinions, our teachers have given warning that they depart from the Holy Scriptures and diminish the glory of the Passion of Christ. For Christ's Passion was an oblation and satisfaction, not for original guilt only, but also for all other sins. As it is written to the Hebrews 10.10, We are sanctified through the offering of Jesus Christ once for all. Also Hebrews 10.14, By one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Scripture also teaches that we are justified before God through faith in Christ when we believe that our sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. Now, if the Mass take away the sins of the living and the dead by the outward act, justification comes of the work of Masses and not of faith, which Scripture does not allow. But Christ commands us, Luke twenty-two nineteen, this do in remembrance of me. Therefore the Mass was instituted that the faith of those who use the sacrament should remember what benefits it receives through Christ, and cheer and comfort the anxious conscience. For to remember Christ is to remember His benefits, and to realize that they are truly offered unto us. Nor is it enough only to remember the history, for this also the Jews and the ungodly can remember. Wherefore the Mass is to be used to this end, that there the sacrament may be administered to them that have need of consolation. As Ambrose says, Because I always sin, I am always bound to take the medicine. Now forasmuch as the Mass is such a giving of the sacrament, we hold one communion every holy day. And if any desire the sacrament also on other days, when it is given to such as ask for it. 
And this custom is not new in the church, for the fathers before Gregory make no mention of any private mass, but of the common mass they speak very much. Chrysostom says that the priest stands daily at the altar, inviting some to the communion and keeping back others. And it appears from the ancient canons that some one celebrated the Mass from whom all the other presbyters and deacons received the body of the Lord, for thus the words of the Nicene Canon say, Let the deacons, according to their order, receive the Holy Communion after the presbyters, from the bishop or from a presbyter. And Paul, 1 Corinthians 11.33, commands concerning the communion, Tarry one for another, so that there may be a common participation. For as much, therefore, as the Mass with us has the example of the Church, taken from the Scripture and the Fathers, we are confident that it cannot be disproved, especially since public ceremonies, for the most part like those hitherto in use, are retained. Only the number of Masses differs, which, because of very great and manifest abuses, doubtless might be profitably reduced. For in olden times, even in churches most frequented, the Mass was not celebrated every day. As the Tripartite History, Book 9, Chapter 33, testifies, Again in Alexandria, every Wednesday and Friday, the Scriptures are read as the doctors expound them, and all things are done except the solemn rite of communion. Article 25 of Confession Confession in the churches is not abolished among us, for it is not usual to give the body of the Lord except to them that have been previously examined and absolved. And the people are most carefully taught concerning faith in the absolution, about which formerly there was profound silence. Our people are taught that they should highly prize the absolution as being the voice of God and pronounced by God's command. The power of the keys is set forth in its beauty, and they are reminded what great consolation it brings to anxious consciences. Also, that God requires faith to believe such absolution as a voice sounding from heaven, and, and that such faith in Christ truly obtains and receives the forgiveness of sins. Aforetime, satisfactions were immoderately extolled. Of faith and the merit of Christ and the righteousness of faith, no mention was made. Wherefore, on this point, our churches are by no means to be blamed. For this, even our adversaries must needs concede to us that the doctrine concerning repentance has been most dilig diligently treated and laid open by our teachers. But of confession, they teach that an enumeration of sins is not necessary, and that consciences be not burdened with anxiety to enumerate all sins. For it is impossible to recount all sins. As the Psalm 19.13 testifies, who can understand his errors? Also Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful, who can know it? But if no sins were forgiven except those that are recounted, Consciences could never find peace, for very many sins they neither see nor can remember. The ancient writers also testify that an enumeration is not necessary. For in the decrees, Chrysostom is quoted, who says thus, I say not to you that you should disclose yourself in public, nor that you accuse yourself before others, but I would have you obey the prophet who says, Disclose thy way before God. 
Therefore confess your sins before God, the true judge, with prayer. Tell your errors not with the tongue, but with the memory of your conscience, etc. And the gloss admits that confession is of human right only. Nevertheless, on account of the great benefit of absolution, and because it is otherwise useful to the conscience, confession is retained among us. Article 26 of the Distinction of Meats It has been the general persuasion, not of the people alone, but also of those teaching in the churches, that making distinctions of meats, and like traditions of men, are works profitable to merit grace, and able to make satisfaction for sins. And that the world so thought appears from this, that new ceremonies, new orders, new holy days, and new fastings were daily instituted, and the teachers in the churches did exact these works as a service necessary to merit grace, and did greatly terrify men's consciences if they should omit any of these things. From this persuasion concerning traditions, much detriment has resulted in the church. First, the doctrine of grace and of the righteousness of faith has been obscured by it, which is the chief part of the gospel and ought to stand out as the most prominent in the church, in order that the merit of Christ may be well known, and faith, which believes that sins are forgiven for Christ's sake, be exalted far above works. Wherefore Paul also lays the greatest stress on this article, putting aside the law and human traditions, in order to show that Christian righteousness is something else than such works, to wit, the faith which believes that sins are freely forgiven for Christ's sake. But this doctrine of Paul has been almost wholly smothered by traditions, which have produced an opinion that by making distinctions in meats and like services, we must merit grace and righteousness. In treating repentance, there was no mention made of faith. Only those works of satisfaction were set forth. In these, the entire repentance seemed to consist. Secondly, these traditions have obscured the commandments of God because traditions were placed far above the commandments of God. Christianity was thought to consist wholly in the observance of certain holy days, rites, fasts, and vestures. These observances had won for themselves the exalted title of being the spiritual life and the perfect life. Meanwhile, the commandments of God, according to each one's calling, were without honor, namely, that the father brought up his offspring, that the mother bore children, that the prince governed the commonwealth. These were accounted works that were worldly and imperfect, and far below those glittering observances. And this error greatly tormented devout consciences, which grieved that they were held in an imperfect state of life, as in marriage, in the office of magistrate, or in other civil ministrations. On the other hand, they admired the monks and such like, and falsely imagined that the observances of such men were more acceptable to God. Thirdly, traditions brought great danger to consciences, for it was impossible to keep all traditions, and yet men judged these observances to be necessary acts of worship. Gerson writes that many fell into despair, and that some even took their own lives, because they felt that they were not able to satisfy the traditions. And they had all the while not heard any consolation of the righteousness of faith and grace. 
We see that the Sumists and theologians gather the traditions and seek mitigations whereby to ease consciences, and yet they do not sufficiently unfetter, but sometimes entangle consciences even more. And with the gathering of these traditions, the schools and sermons have been so much occupied that they had no leisure to touch upon Scripture and to seek the more profitable doctrine of faith, of the cross, of hope, of the dignity of civil affairs, of consolation of sorely tried consciences. Hence, Gerson and some other theologians have grievously complained that by these strivings concerning traditions, they were prevented from giving attention to a better kind of doctrine. Augustine also forbids that men's consciences should be burdened with such observances, and prudently advises Januarius that he must know that they are to be observed as things indifferent, for such are his words. Wherefore our teachers must not be looked upon as having taken up this matter rashly or from hatred of the bishops, as some falsely suspect. There was great need to warn the churches of these errors which had arisen from mis misunderstanding the traditions. For the gospel compels us to insist in the churches upon the doctrine of grace and of the righteousness of faith, which, however, cannot be understood if men think that they merit grace by observances of their own choice. Thus, therefore, they have taught that by the observance of the, the human traditions, we cannot merit grace or be justified, and hence we must not think such observances necessary acts of worship. They add hereunto testimonies of Scripture. Christ, Matthew 15, 3, defends the apostles who had not observed the usual tradition, which, however, evidently pertains to a matter not unlawful but indifferent, and to have a certain affinity with the purifications of the law, and says, Matthew 15, 9, In vain do they worship me with the commandments of men. He, therefore, does not exact an unprofitable service. Shortly after, he adds, Not that which goeth into the mouth defile a man, so also Paul, Romans 14, 17, The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Colossians 2, 16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the Sabbath day. Also, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, and Peter says, Acts 15.10, Why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved, even as they. Here, Peter forbids to burden the consciences with many rights, either of Moses or of others. And in 1 Timothy 4.1.3, Paul calls the prohibition of meats a doctrine of devils. For it is against the gospel to institute or to do such works that by them we merit grace, or as though Christianity could not exist without such service of God. Here, our adversaries object that our teachers are opposed to discipline and mortification of the flesh, as Jovinian. But the contrary may be learned from the writings of our teachers. For they have always taught concerning the cross that it behooves Christians to bear afflictions. This is the true, earnest, and unfeigned mortification to wit, to be exercised with diverse afflictions and to be crucified with Christ. 
Moreover, they teach that every Christian ought to train and subdue himself with bodily restraints or bodily exercises and labors, that neither satiety nor slothfulness tempt him to sin, but not that we may merit grace or make satisfaction for sins by such exercises. And such external discipline ought to be urged at all times, not only on a few and set days. So Christ commands, Luke 21-34, Take heed lest your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting. Also Matthew 17-21, This kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Paul also says, 1 Corinthians 9-27, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Here, he clearly shows that he was keeping under his body, not to merit forgiveness of sins by that discipline, but to have his body in subjection and fitted for spiritual things, and for the discharge of duty according to his calling. Therefore, we do not condemn fasting in itself, but the traditions which prescribe certain days and certain meats with peril of conscience, as though such works were a necessary service. Nevertheless, very many traditions are kept on our part, which conduce to good order in the church, as the order of lessons in the Mass and the chief holy days. But at the same time, men are warned that such observances do not justify before God, and that in such things it should not be made sin if they be omitted without offense. Such liberty in human rights was not unknown to the fathers, for in the East they kept Easter at another time than in Rome. And when, on account of this diversity, the Romans accused the Eastern Church of Schism, they were admonished by others that such usages need not be alike everywhere. And Irenaeus says, Diversity concerning fasting does not destroy the harmony of faith. As also Pope Gregory intimates, that such diversity does not violate the unity of the Church. And in the Tripart History, Book 9, many examples of dissimilar rites are gathered, and the following statement is made. It was not the mind of the apostles to enact rules concerning holy days, but to preach godliness and a holy life.